Hello, everybody. This is Oscar Dahl. I'm here with Matthew Knutson, and this is We Like Movies AFI Top 100 Countdown, number 70, A Clockwork Orange, a Stanley Kubrick film. Uh, you mentioned to me that this was his second film of four on the list here. I forgot what the first one was, and that's because that one was Spartacus, and I don't really consider that a Stanley Kubrick movie um, or really think of it that way. Nor uh, nor did Stanley Kubrick, if you were to ask him. He was not especially fond of that film. Yeah, and was not on the original AFI list, so it is a little bit weird that it made it this time around. Yeah, but A Clockwork Orange, you, you know, immediately think of Stanley Kubrick. One of his more Kubrickian films. 19, what, 71? Pretty big deal in its time. An infamous film for a lot of reasons. You know, it has sort of a cult audience as well as sort of, uh, you know, it's generally widely known film, but often seen as kind of a, I don't know, maybe a difficult film to watch. And honestly, it's a movie that I, I haven't, uh, you know, I haven't seen too many times. Uh, for that reason, I I don't think I'd actually seen it since college, Matt. What what's oh, wow. your what's your experience with with Clockwork? It's definitely a film I feel pretty darn familiar with. I revisited it. I revisit it relatively often, at least a couple times a year. It was always like a movie that was very mysterious to me because my parents kind of held it in this very strange emotional place where like you know my parents are you know a little on the prudish side i'd say when it comes to more extreme films especially the x-rated variety uh they had both seen it in the 70s but basically my dad claimed that he had walked out of it because he was so turned off by it and my mom claims to have seen it in college and that it like scared her to death and that she's never wanted to watch it again because she found it so disturbing. <laughs> so anyway, they would always they would always talk about it as like, oh, it's, you know, like it's one of the craziest, most perverse, most disturbing, most violent movies ever made. You know, they couldn't believe that a film like this got produced. And my mom's a big, you know, she's an avid reader. So she was mm-hmm. very familiar with the source material, but claimed it was very difficult for her to watch the movie without, you know, closing her eyes occasionally. So basically by the time I finally got around to watching it when it was on like HBO or Fox movie channel, like one of those really deep, deep cable channels, but one of the deep cable channels where they don't edit things, yeah, you know, or like they only show the Fox movie channel. That was the best. Yeah. Because they only show quote unquote classy stuff, right? They show the Mm -hmm. classy stuff. Like that's where I first saw all that jazz, for example, Mm -hmm. like it was, it was the classy movies, but they wouldn't uh, uh, raging bull. I think, I think that's the first movies that were still rated R in this case rated X, but they wouldn't cut them the way they would on, you know, TBS or TNT or something. So when I finally got around to seeing it, when I was probably, I don't know, maybe 14, 15 years old, uh, it, it had already been built up for me as this crazy X-rated midnight movie. And um, and it definitely blew my hair back. I mean, it was unlike anything I'd ever seen up to that mm-hmm. point. Revisiting it more and more over the years, it does tend to seem a little more quaint, I suppose, in retrospect. I mean, there's still parts of it that are still just as crazy today as they probably were in the 70s. And you can see why it would have been such a... Um, just kind of like galvanizing piece of work. But yeah, it's something that I immediately responded to and have continued to revisit because it's a movie that defies easy sort of explanation. Or I mean, it's a movie that asks a whole hell of a lot of questions. And uh, and I still find myself puzzling, you know, stewing over those questions years and years later. I think that this probably does exist in the rarefied air of being probably amongst the five most famous quote-unquote midnight movies ever made right i mean what what would you put up there like rocky horror Horror, you know i put rocky horror maybe the original suspiria 
Clockwork Orange. Uh, I don't know, maybe Pink Flamingos. Uh, sure. I really, I really think it on any given Saturday night around the world, Clockwork Orange is probably playing at a repertory theater somewhere. Yeah, that's probably true. I mean, it's interesting talking about how how it feels more quaint these days. And you know, I wasn't around in 1971 to get the initial all the initial buzz and blowback, and you know, witness the controversy itself. But that is kind of what struck me is that sort of the the infamy surrounding this movie has outgrown the the reality of it, and that's not the film's fault because I'm sure it was every bit as transgressive in 1971 as people say it was. But it just it it, it doesn't feel that way now, and the subject matter is still pretty extreme. But you know the violence, the you know the the sexual assault stuff. You know maybe it's just because we're sort of de- sort of desensitized to movies these days. But yeah, I, I I wasn't I wasn't taken aback by really anything in this movie um, in terms of being being offended by it. But uh, like you said, there is a lot to sort of bite into and and a lot of stuff to to make you think. Although we'll we'll get into the sort of specifics of of what it's trying to say and the, and the satire it's trying to produce. I don't know. Like, has the movie has the quality of the movie changed in, in your eyes over the years? I mean, is it something where you, you think it's maybe a little more style than substance these days, or, or or do you still sort of respond to it in a in a positive manner? It's an interesting question. I saw it uh, over the weekend again. I watched it at the Quad Cinema in Greenwich Village. <laughs> They're doing an exhibition of X-rated films this month, which is a weird way to celebrate the holidays. But uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Clockwork Orange falls neatly into that category, and uh, and they were screening a 35 millimeter print of it. So I was like, "Hey, we're supposed to be talking about this movie. That movie's screening this weekend. I'm going to go check it out on 35 millimeter because I've never seen it in the theater before." I I do think that it is still just as relevant today as it probably was in 1971. I mean, I think it's a bit of a cliche to say that the movie is even more relevant today or like is a reflection of our times the way that Kubrick or Anthony Burgess intended this to be as a science fiction satire. Kubrick's approach and his style really, really holds up. I think Wendy Carlos's crazy moogie synthesizer stuff really holds up and doesn't mm-hmm. feel silly or dated to me uh, so much as it feels kind of appropriate for the material. There maybe are some costuming choices that are filtered through a <laughs> 1970s sensibility, you know, like science fiction films, with the exception maybe of 2001, which came out three years before this. Uh, science fiction films made in the 70s, even, you know, into the Star Wars realm, are a reflection of the future filtered <laughs> through a 70s sartorial sensibility, right? The look and feel is, is interesting because, you know, the first... The, there are scenes in this movie that are very surreal and give a sort of glimpse of an of an odd future, but then there are a lot of scenes because it was filmed on location that just feel simply like 1970s London or 1970s England, right? So it's this weird sort of back and forth between you know surreal choices made by the set designers and Kubrick to things that oh this is just a movie that took place 40 years ago in in the UK. Yeah. That felt a little weird to me and I was reading up about it and for whatever reason Kubrick want, you know chose a lot of locations that were within driving distance of his home. Yes. He he pulled the same trick when he when he did Full Metal Jacket except that movie's set in Vietnam. Yeah. Stanley exactly. Kubrick did not like to travel to work if he could help it. It's so it's it's so odd for such a meticulous taskmaster who need, you know, a perfectionist like him to overlook maybe the importance of <laughs> of shooting shooting elsewhere or, or, or finding different locations. But e- even when scouting the locations near his home, apparently he visited like a thousand places to, 
to, to really you know find exactly the the, the right stuff and you know the, the the homes he finds whether it's the cat lady or the writer's uh, home are, are you know visually arresting really cool locations and obviously they were they were chosen for a reason especially that you know the writer's house is so uh so unique and in, in, in of its of its time yeah but uh it doesn't feel like i'm in the future for all that all that much of the running time I and mean, you know the record store the milk bar like those things are really cool but almost everywhere else feels like i said like 1970s yeah, it's almost more of an alternate reality experiment than it is a straight-up futuristic science fiction sure, animal, sure. right? Yeah, yeah. It does feel like alternate London the way that, you know, something like Watchmen is, you know, alternate history New York, right? And I like that about it. I mean, it really is a quintessentially British film, even though it is made by an American director and financed by an American studio. And so I think that's what's so interesting to think that the film was banned in the uk for you know 25 30 years or something right almost the entire cast is british it's all obviously shot in and around london and uh, and it deals a lot with um sort of you know the british government or anthony burgess's sort of political opinions about the british government you mentioned that it, it does seem you know the the film's themes seem prescient even now i i i I kind of agree with you but i kind of uh maybe in a different way like how how would you explain what you know why this this film still holds holds weight today oh i mean i i'm certainly much more qualified to talk about the the technical (laughs) aspects of the film than i am to talk about the sort of like psychological or political implications i mean what i like about the movie is that it seems to really be hypercritical of both sides of the political coin right Sure. It's very it's it's critical of the far right side and it's critical of the far left side and and that actually is a place that I tend to live uh, ideologically for much of my time. So I don't know if that was necessarily if that was Burgess making a statement that he didn't want to be affiliated with either party or that uh, the, Britain had put itself in a position where there was just too much in terms of extremes. Yeah. But the ideas about like free will or behaviorism. Pavlovian uh, conditioning experiments and things, I think, is where the movie's uh, metaphoric currency mm-hmm. is is at its strongest, right? Like, it's it's much more interesting in, in terms of how it deals with psychology than in terms of how it deals with politics, right? Or at least more uh, successful artistically. Well, yeah, so that's what I was getting at. You know, re-reading sort of where Burgess and Kubrick were coming from, they, they did seem to have a real legitimate fear of this behavioral psychology or, or, or whatever becoming, you know, a, a danger to society. And, and that was sort of the, the crux of their, of their satire here, right? You know, if we take that to be true, that hasn't really panned out in, you know, their so-called favor here, right? Like in, in, in the succeeding 40 years, right? Whether it's, uh, I don't know, Ritalin for ADHD people or, or, or drugs to help bipolar people or whatever, like, the, the things they're sort of satirizing here have become widely accepted and more or less considered to be good by society, right? Like, there's who, who's who's uh, who's on the side of anti, you know, behavioral changes through unnatural means anymore, right? I guess Scientologists are against psychiatry, but I, I don't know. I, I can't really name a, another faction who's who's taking sort of the perspective of of Kubrick and and Burgess here right but this is about this is about extremes right like this is about taking this stuff to its most extreme point it's about literally drugging somebody up 
and forcing their eyeballs open and then giving them this aversion therapy, which as far as I know, we don't do to prisoners at this point. Maybe someday we will. Yeah, we definitely but, don't do that. I mean, at least, you know, at least the New York Times isn't <laughs> um, isn't reporting on it. Not to put you on the spot, but I mean, do you do you see that as a viable way to um, combat, you know, recidivism? The idea no, that no, you I, could I, put them in a position where they literally <laughs> wouldn't be able to commit these crimes anymore? Absolutely not. But like, that's what satire is, right? You take something to the extreme to make your point about something maybe a little more nuanced. I, I guess what I, what I'm getting at is... What they're satirizing here is not an issue anymore. None of these things are, are things we talk about. And like, and I, I don't know the history. I mean, just like you, I don't know how real the idea of sort of extreme aversion therapy was back then. But whatever came of it, it, it seems to be a, a a moot point these days. Yes, I, I I would agree with that. Although I think that one could make the argument that the gang violence they were concerned with which was must have been, um, you know, sort of bubbling up in London in the 1960s to frighten Bur- Burgess enough to write something like this. You can see parallels to that in certain cities around the world, like gang violence in some place like Chicago, violence in certain Latin American countries have gotten to the point where it's so bad that people do feel afraid to walk the streets. You know, maybe Detroit or St. Louis in this country. Obviously, it's not nearly that bad in London and New York, New York anymore for a number of mm-hmm. reasons. I, I think that there is something to be said for Burgess's concern that a certain amount of free will on the part of young people might lead them to think that uh, that they didn't have to abide by law and order and could sort of do as they wish. Sure, and is sure. That I, still, is that something that's still relevant today? I think the relevance is, yeah, I think the relevance is political, right? I think there are groups on the far right, like I said, who who blame <clears throat> the criminal, right? And then there are people on the on the left, people I agree with, who say, well, it's probably society's fault for creating the creating the criminal or, or creating the uh, the setting and the situation for that person to make these decisions, right? That argument or, or that point of view doesn't really take into account the sort of free will aspect that this movie is really honing in on, which is. Definitely, I think, the the beating heart and soul of this thing. And interestingly enough, I feel like kind of like the cultural personality surrounding this film, the way that film history kind of like looks at this film, isn't particularly as interested in that stuff as it is in the aesthetic stuff or the yeah. stylistic stuff, right? Like people who've never seen this movie presume that it is all the first you know 15 or even 20 minutes of this movie they don't really even consider the fact that the movie's much more interested in the idea of free will like the mm-hmm. the open the first act of the movie is is just setting up an extreme situation where we can start investigating this the ethics of this whole ludovico technique situation i think that is yeah i, th- I think you're right i think people see they make the whole movie about the first 30 minutes, right? Yeah, or, it's all about the eyel- you know, the eyelashes and the bowler hats and stuff. Like that's when when people think of this movie, that's the first image they go that's the striking aesthetic stuff they go to. They don't necessarily go to complex sort of ruminations on free will. <laughs> but that really is the heart and soul of the film is is that. That's kind of what makes it a brilliant satire. Yeah, I mean, the beginning, you know, the first 20 25 minutes or so, it, I mean, it is propulsive and exciting and disgusting and surreal. Yeah. You know, I I do think the, you know, the last 3 quarters of this movie are probably more interesting than the first 30 minutes. I think you're right. I think the style stuff holds up extremely well. I think there's just there's one unfortunate green screen car thing at the very beginning. You don't think that that's intentional? 
every time I watch that, I think that that's an intentional little bit of it's it's a it's a little cheesy, and I kind of feel like that's on purpose. Am I wrong? Am I just justifying? For me, like this was it was one of the you know first notes I took is like, oh, this is it seems sort of non Kubrickian to have this I don't know clear green screen where where everything else is so meticulous. But I don't know, I I, I could definitely be wrong about that. My feeling every time, and I, I I think it's actually rear screen projection. So I think they're actually sitting in front of a in front of a screen, and it's being the background's being projected. And to me, it always felt like it was. Alex's sort of expressionistic interpretation of he and his guys actually existing inside of a, a film like this, right? It's like him, mm-hmm. you know, playing thug inside of a movie. Like he saw a film that had a scene like this where guys were racing around in a car, and this is him projecting himself literally and figuratively into one of these crazy scenarios. That was that was always the way I interpreted it, but maybe I'm giving Kubrick way too much credit. Well, I just feel well, like he's such like you said he's such a meticulous guy. That seems like a choice to me. Well, whether you're justifying or not, that's a that's a good interpretation. So I'll I'll, I'll accept it. Okay. Um, you know, we've talked a lot about uh, voiceover over the years, and you know how it can be a crutch. But I'm just spellbound by the by the voiceover in this movie, especially with the with the vocabulary being used. And just the attitude of, of Malcolm McDowell, you know, one of the better voiceovers uh, you'll hear in film, and it, it's a good way to get inside this guy's head and to sort of keep being, uh, you know, reminded that this this dude has no no apologies for who <laughs> who he is the entire time. He's always just this guy, and that plays in really well, obviously, with the behavioral science aspect of this movie. Um, you fan of the voiceover? Yeah, if ever there was a film that really could justify its own need for a very, very subjective point of view. It's this, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you have to be completely in this guy's head the entire time. Otherwise, a lot of the commentary just doesn't work. Um, I'm assuming you've you've probably read the book, right? You're an avid you're an avid. I reader. have not read the book. No, I hear it's actually a pretty easy read. It's only about 200 pages. Apparently, the film from the little bit of research that I've done, it seems as if the film is a pretty damn faithful adaptation and so i'm assuming all that vo with with or that narration with few exceptions is probably you know ripped directly from the text yeah or, or at least the you know the, the style and the vocabulary yeah. i'm sure is, is very very similar it's called nadsat right the mm-hmm, the vocab mm-hmm. is was burgess's it, burgess was a linguist i think in addition to being a novelist so he had basically invented this kind of like slavic russian influenced cockney rhyming weirdness <laughs> it's so weird but so good it is and, and it takes a little getting used to but like once you start to fill in the gaps i mean the book has a glossary in the back of it so you can actually like refer to the glossary if you're if you're getting confused by these vocab words yeah you, you figure out what devotchka means pretty quick in this movie, <laughs> I, I was i was going through oh god i should have writ, fucking written this down i was going through and i was actually writing down terms or words or translations that have been used as either album titles or band titles you know because <laughs> culturally culturally this movie is kind of watershed you know it's it's been an enormous influence uh, not just in terms of its style and aesthetics but also in terms of the words used throughout the thing yeah i'm sure there's a shitty punk band somewhere whose name is the old in and out <laughs> or a or a dive bar at least let's hope right <laughs> yeah absolutely yeah and you know has been adapted over the years to many different stage interpretations uh, museum installation pieces that have been uh, dedicated to this i mean this really is kind of like a seminal 20th century science fiction text that people just continue to be fascinated by over the years mm-hmm. and uh, but this but kubrick's adaptation seems to be the 
the preferred version. And you've got Malcolm McDowell here, who I think was 28 years old when they made this film. And it is just the quintessential star-making role. It was not his first role. He had, uh, he had done a film, a Lindsay Anderson, Lin, Lindsay Anderson film called If, a few years earlier that won the Palme d'Or at Cannes, which brought him to Kubrick's attention. But this really was his, his breakout role, for obvious reasons, right? Yeah, it's uh, it's totally fearless, and you can't really imagine anyone else in it. I mean, part of that's just the, you know how seminal this movie has become and you know the, the legend that it is. You can, you, you can really imagine anyone else uh, as the lead role but uh yeah i mean he's 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 perfect for it and the, the attitude is is just on point the entire time and it's it's unforgiving a lot of other members of the cast here are pretty good i uh i forget his name oh peter mcgee i think is 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 the is the standout to me as as the as the writer as the depressed writer sure. guy in this movie and also you got darth vader in there yes for, for good measure darth vader david prowse is uh is peter mcgee's manservant right <laughs> yep for some reason, he has this huge hulking manservant. I mean, I guess he has to be huge and hulking because he has to be able to carry Peter McGee around in his in his uh, wheelchair. Yeah, manservant slash bodyguard after his uh, yeah after his encounter early in the film. Yeah, lots of lots of familiar Kubrickian faces here, like lots of people who keep pop up and Barry Lyndon and The Shining, especially. I don't have all their names in front of me right now, but but Kubrick had this very kind of insular band of uh, actors and collaborators you know must have been way into the theater or into mostly british film and television because you don't see a lot of these guys popping up in things outside of kubrick films they're the people that kubrick learned could put up with him doing yes. 100 takes that's probably scene. exactly right yeah <laughs> no it's a good point he, he found the people who were willing to put up with him so yes you're probably exactly right about that so he's so he's three years off of um, 2001: A Space Odyssey at this point. So he basically is at the height of his powers at this point in his career. Like people are calling him a genius. He's he's made this you know groundbreaking science fiction film, which was not only critically acclaimed and Oscar nominated, but also was a surprise um, box office hit. Mm-hmm. And that movie was sort of acclaimed as a masterpiece, basically from the very beginning. That's not a, that's not a movie that found its audience later. So uh, so yeah, he was about as powerful as he's a, as he had ever been in his career at this point. And the fact that he decided to do this to adapt this very this very strange novel is, is very telling. Apparently, he was really really enthusiastic about it. I think his wife introduced him to the book. Yeah, I read that too. Yeah, he does this even though it's critically acclaimed and ended up being a big hit, at least in the U.S. Um, he starts getting all these death threats and people are like protesting outside of his house and stuff. And he voluntarily pulls the film from British cinemas. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, like we said, like the movie does seem quaint now, but you know, it's, it was probably it was rated more X, subject, you know, yeah, probably more subject matter than it was like the actual scenes on film because, you know, as, as sort of horrifying as, you know, the first 30 minutes are and the, you know, multiple instances of sexual assault, um, nothing is terribly graphic in this in this movie, right? Like, I mean, am I forgetting something that's like really, really disturbing or would be considered graphic violence at this point? No, I mean it's it's consistent throughout, but there's more more than anything. There's just kind of like this very strange, unsettling sense of dread <laughs> throughout yes. this whole movie, right? <laughs> Which is something Kubrick excels at. I mean, that's you know that's what The Shining was all about. That's that that The Shining was an experiment to see how long you could sustain that feeling. Mm-hmm. And uh, and yeah, you just feel so unsettled throughout this whole thing. Although that being said, 
I don't find it to be an unpleasant experience. Like I don't find it abhorrent the way some people do. Maybe that means I'm twisted, but yeah, I, I feel the same way. I mean, I, I, one of the thing, first things I wrote down after the movie was like that was a, that's an easy watch. Yeah. You know, it's kind of a breezy watch <laughs> given the subject matter and everything we've we've said about it. Relatively speaking, also one of Kubrick's shorter films, which is <laughs> sure, merciful. I, I, I think it's a short book, which has, probably has a lot to do with it. But um, yeah, I think it is. I think it is the sexual assault for sure. I mean, not to you know undervalue the potency of some of the viol- you know some of just the um, the brawls will just wantonly attack homeless men. <laughs> but yeah. yeah, I think it's the the sexual assault stuff that really kind of like pushes this over into into a category that that makes it very very difficult for a portion of the viewing audience. And I think that is why it definitely ended up. Uh, with an X rating second film to be nominated for best picture second X rated film to be nominated for best picture in two years right Midnight Cowboy in 69 and this in 71 yeah so the last one of course because that rating wasn't around for that much longer but Mm -hmm. it is interesting that those two films both X rated both nominated for best picture both on this AFI list has there been an NC-17 movie nominated since then I don't believe so I don't don't think think so so. I don't think so either yeah well, I mean, Showgirls, obviously, but like, you know, <laughs> well, it's yeah, right if there. We count, if count Razzie, too. <laughs> and then the next question would be, has there been an unrated, you know, a film that has foregone having a rating that's been nominated for Best Picture? I have to, I'll have to do some research into that. But it, I just think it's so interesting that the movie, I mean, it'd be interesting to, to sort of do some research and crunch the numbers and um, and read some old you know, editorial op-ed articles to glean how much of this film's surprisingly, surprisingly impressive box office had to do with um, all of this controversy, right? Like how many, yeah. Amer- how, how much of the American box office was built on the idea like, ooh, this is, you know, this is kind of naughty. This is something we're not supposed to see. We got to get out to see it as quickly as possible. It might not be in theaters that much longer. What if they ban it? We need to, we need to be able to say <laughs> that we've seen it. Well, that's, that's interesting. Do you know if there was a delay between its British release and American release if there was like buzz coming in the only real release info that I got was that it opened December 19th 1971 47 years ago this week and then opened wide in the US and then opened wide opened wide in the US in January and then opened wide in uh, the UK shortly thereafter so it actually opened here first but you know you usually think of American audiences and the MPAA and all these you know PTA like all these different groups being so sort of puritanical especially when it comes to the sexual stuff I'm actually very surprised that it was the British film board who reacted the way they did to this as opposed to the American one. This was never banned in the U.S. Yeah, especially the way we know British culture or whatever being more open to sexuality and erotic stuff. On, I mean, you, you can go over and watch nudity on regular BBC if you're over in England, but America has a way different <laughs> view on that stuff. So it is surprising. I mean, it has to do with the time, probably, and just the the rise of alternative 70s cinema, I guess. And I think the setting, honestly, I, I mean, I think I don't, I think there was probably a large portion of the British population who didn't like the idea of their culture being reflected back this way. Yeah, you know, by an American filmmaker. I, I'm assuming that a lot of the controversy stemmed from there. All right, Matt, what's your favorite scene in this movie? Well, it's funny now, now that I just got done saying that the first, you know, 15, 20 minutes, the first, you know, the first act, even if you will, of this film is not necessarily reflective of what the movie is actually particularly interested in. I do think that the first scene, you know, the opening shot and then by extension, maybe the first 13 minutes, if you want to call it the first sequence. Sure. Really is Kubrick just firing on all cylinders, right? Like I yeah, feel like if cool. you needed to sort of explain Stanley Kubrick 
to, you know, mm-hmm. if an alien landed and wanted to learn about <laughs> the, the cinema and you wanted to teach them, you know, you had 10 minutes to teach them Stanley Kubrick, could you do worse than to just show them the first 10 minutes of this film? Yeah, even the credits and the first shot is just so in- unbelievable. Yeah, it's, it's hard to argue with that as, as the best. I mean, a couple other nominees for me would be uh i love the spaghetti scene <laughs> okay uh, quite a bit uh just surreal and weird and tense i think the whole stuff at his you know multiple scenes back at his parents apartment i really like i think the threesome scene is pretty pretty dang impressive mm-hmm. uh given what it is and, and just all all the music stuff and beethoven stuff back at the apartment's really cool but uh yeah i'm not gonna argue with the the opening sequence being the one yeah my only other nominee was the the, the first quote-unquote ludwig van scene yeah which is where he comes home uh mm-hmm. and you know he lets his snake out and he and he puts the little tape in and he starts to have all these visions and that's re- that's again that's just really kubrick just like fucking you know dropping it into fourth gear yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, the threesome scene apparently took 28 minutes to shoot. So okay. it, it's about 30 seconds worth of screen time, but it took them 28 minutes to get that whole time lapse thing going. And wouldn't you have loved to have been a fly on the wall to, to to see or to at least hear Kubrick, you know, shouting directions at McDowell and these two girls, or just blocking the scene to begin with? Right? Yeah, Matt. Does this deserve to be on the list? Yes, it does deserve to be on the list. It is definitely one of Kubrick's best films, and I like the fact that a list like this, that the AFI is open-minded enough to include a film like this. Yeah. Um, because it's still, it, you know, there, there's something kind of twisted about it that still, even after all these years, still feels a little bit on the fringe. So oh, yeah. I think it deserves to be on the list, and I honestly kind of like where it's sitting right now. I... God damn it, Matt. I hate when we agree. <laughs> we agree. I was going to say, I think this is exactly the right place yeah. for this movie on the list. It is. Motherfucker. It is. Uh, but I will say this. I'm not crazy about Spartacus. Uh, you can go back and listen to our Spartacus episode to hear my opinions about that film. I don't think it's a bad movie, but I certainly don't think it's one of Kubrick's best. I don't think it deserves to be on this list. I think Barry Lyndon deserves to be on this list, and it mm-hmm. really, really bugs me that it isn't. I would be willing to sacrifice this film, Spartacus, if it meant we could get Barry Lyndon on the list. I like the idea of having Kubrick's four best films, 2001, Doctor Strangelove, Clockwork Orange, and Barry Lyndon on this list together. But if if you put a gun in my head and said one or the other, I would sacrifice this for Barry Lyndon, personally. I, I think that's fair. Uh, you should call it the AFI and... Start negotiations. <laughs> Might as well, yeah. See if they'll still take my call. Um, no, I think this movie definitely deserves to be on the list. I like it sitting right here at number 70. And I really, really enjoyed getting to revisit it, especially getting to see it on the big screen. I mean, it's it's it's, it's an impressive piece of work. With that, we will end our AFI Top 100 list, number 70, Clockwork Orange. Say goodbye, Matt. Goodbye. Goodbye.